Hello, and welcome to Step Into the Past, the podcast where we take you back in time to follow in the footsteps of our ancestors, brought to you by Find My Past. In each episode, we'll explore the stories of historical lives and their connections to places right across the UK. And we speak to their living descendants to discover the impact of their legacy today. I'm Professor Susanna Lipscomb, historian, author, and TV presenter. I've always been fascinated by stories of people from the past and how they experienced the world. I particularly enjoy uncovering the mysteries behind family history and how these can be pieced together using historical records, which we'll be doing plenty of throughout this series. In today's episode, we'll be discovering a family story that was closely intertwined with Britain's cotton trade over multiple generations to meet the people who experienced life at one of the largest industrial mills of the 19th century. Keep listening to meet the people of Quarry Bank as we explore their lives and legacies with one of their descendants. Today we've come here to Quarry Bank, a cotton mill which sits beside the River Bolin in Stile, a small village just outside Manchester, the hub of Britain's cotton industry. Cared for by the National Trust, the mill is one of the best-preserved textile factories of the Industrial Revolution. Quarry Bank was built in 1784 by Samuel Gregg and grew to become one of the largest cotton manufacturing businesses in the world. As the factory expanded, the nearby village of Star was built by the Greggs to accommodate their huge workforce. The story of Quarry Bank is that of an entire industrial community and of the evolving technology and industry that shaped their lives. So let's meet today's guest. I'm delighted to be joined by David Higginson, who has a very special connection to this place. You're a volunteer here, you've been a volunteer for a long time, but also your family have lived here for centuries and you yourself have lived in this area all your life, haven't you? That's right, yes, yes. What do you know about your family history? Well, I, I, when I started researching my family history, I was just concentrating on my surname, the Higginson family. So I didn't really bother about style very much and the Pearsons and the Krauts and people like that. But I don't know a lot of details about them other than that they lived in style, really, that sort of thing. So, David, we're going to be talking about some of those people you've just mentioned. We're going to be talking okay. about the Pearsons today. And we're going to go back to your five times great-grandparents, right. Samuel and Mary. So Samuel was working in silk in Macclesfield. He was a silk throaster, so he was doing it by hand before the Industrial Revolution. So he was winding yes. together the silk. And his son, Henry, was the first of your family to come here. Okay. To Quarry Bank. Right. He married Anne from nearby Wilmslow, and they had three sons, including William, from whom you're descended. Right, okay. I, I didn't know about, the, um, about Samuel uh, to that extent. I'd seen the name, but I'd never really taken any notice of it. Uh, I didn't know he, he dealt in work with silk or anything like that. I just always thought it was cotton. Yeah. So it's really good. <laughs> 
And the interesting thing is that Henry and Anne would have seen the Industrial Revolution really starting to bite, I suppose, because given that the mill was started... 1784. 12, that's right. So by yeah. 1796, it had doubled in size. Yes. And then we start to see changes that really make an impact on the lives of the workers. Yes. And they would have been living through all of that. Yeah, it's... it's it, I don't know what to say. It's amazing, really, isn't it? It's, it, it, uh, it's quite surprising. Well, shall we go in to the mill and have a think about what life might have been like for them and for their children? Yes, OK, yeah, that'd be great, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so lead the way. <laughs> right. You've been in a cotton mill before? Not for many, many years. Yes. So here we are inside the actual cotton mill, and we've got a, a little bit of a hint of what it might have sounded like. I think it would have been much worse. It'd have been a lot louder, there'd been a lot more looms, and it's fairly quiet today. Fairly quiet. <laughs> so this would have been actually during the time that Henry and Anne's son, William, was working here. So this is when the Industrial Revolution is really starting yes. and you've got steam power, and that's making a big difference. What do you know about your family here during that time? I, don't, I know very little about what they actually did in the mill. Okay, well, so we've got William married Francis, yes. and they had four children, and they all worked at the mill. So. We know that in 1841, William was working here as a cotton carder. Right. And 10 years later, he had got a position as a warper. Right, okay. So that means that he was overseeing the process of winding the threads together from a lot yeah. of different bobbins from, to create the warp, right, warp yeah. beam. And we also know something about the pay and the conditions that he was doing 13-hour shifts. Right, okay. <laughs> and the pay was really low. So the, you know, the most one could get was 15 shillings a day, but the average is something like seven shillings threepence. And I looked up what seven shillings threepence might be today. Right. This is actually, okay. actually makes me quite upset to even tell you. It's 29 pounds, not a day, that's the a, a week. week, a week. Yeah. 29 pounds a week and that's for the men women are being paid a third of what the men are earning yeah. and children are paid an absolute pittance yes yeah. it's unbelievable really we were saying this is a time of technology is completely changing yeah. people's experience and so the steam engines would have been working this place and providing power and changing the nature of people's yeah. jobs yeah so as you said, it would have been really noisy. And I actually think, you'll know this better than I from, from volunteering here, but I think it would have been absolutely thunderous, like a, a ceaseless sound. Yeah, I, I think it would have been horrendous, really, because at the moment there's only one piece of machinery going and, you know, there'd have been hundreds and hundreds of them. The floor would have been greasy and it would have been 
cotton dust everywhere. It, it wouldn't have been a very pleasant place to work at all. That's right, and it was also very warm because they wanted to keep the, the air humidity. humid. Exactly, so they would keep the thread from breaking. And as you say, the cotton dust, the combination of the humid air and those kind of minute bits of fabric meant that lots of people ended up with lung disease. That's right. And the noise meant that many people went deaf. So they had to learn to lip yeah. read because the, the sound was so constant and relentless. Yeah, I think that was one of the main, main types of illnesses, uh, either stomach complaints or eye complaints. And it was all to do with the dust from the cotton. I can imagine. Yeah. Should we go yeah. somewhere a bit quieter? Okay, right. I don't suppose they would have worn ear defenders then, would they? No, they'd be nothing like that. I mean, just an extraordinary sense of the getting the sense of the atmosphere. So we were talking upstairs about William and Francis and their four children. The youngest of those children was Enoch. And we know that by 14, he was working with another boy and with a minder to help operate a spinning mule like this. Yes. But he would have almost certainly started as a scavenger. Do you know what the scavengers did? Yes, they, they, the scavengers uh, would collect any waste from underneath the machines. I think pretty horrendous. <laughs> so you right. have to imagine actually that he would have been working under this mule, getting that cotton out. What we have at the bottom of the mule is this serrated edge, which is maybe half a foot yes. off the ground. And they would have been running in to get that and dashing back before the mule came That's at them. That's right, yes. Yes. I mean, terrifying, one would have thought, yeah, for a well, child. Yes, you could easily lose a, a hand or get your head crushed or loads of different things like that. We have the daily threat of that happening. That's right, yes. As part yes, of his yeah, experience. Yes. Now, he would have been working with boys who were not as lucky as he was because he was part of a family. But yes. many of the children working here, of course, were orphans. That's right, yes. Should we go to where they lived? Yes, the apprentice house. Lead on. So we can just hear the sound of the river here, That's can't right, we? That's right, yes. And this is what's powering it, presumably. Yeah, well, yes, uh, that, that's why Samuel Gregg built the mill here. It, it didn't, water didn't cost him anything. No. Yes, I get the impression that he... Uh, was a savvy businessman and oh, saved money yeah. where he could. He, he really was, yeah. Oh. Interesting. We're going this way? When I was a boy, I used to walk up here, 
yeah, yeah. We'd go and visit my great grandma in the village. And uh, I, I used to find it hard work then when I was about six or seven. And now like I'm 71 and I still find it difficult. <laughs> well, it's a steep hill. Yeah, but when you think about it, like the apprentices and the workers that have had to walk up here after they'd done a 12 hour shift in clogs. And so it was another hard journey after they'd done a 12 hour shift. I think that actually, although it would have been tiring for them, they would have been so grateful to be Probably, out of that yes. noise and to be in the fresh air, to be cooling down after that heat. That's right, yes. It's probably a very welcome change. Yes, yeah, so this, this is the apprentice house where uh, the children lived who were indentured here from uh, different parishes. It looks very lovely from here, doesn't it? It's all sort of it's idyllic. very different inside. Well, let's go and have a look. Can we go down this way after his way? Yeah. yeah. So we're now at Apprentice House, which is, as you well know, where the orphans who worked here, who would have come from workhouses, lived. It almost sounds like we can hear echoes of their footsteps above us. And what's incredible to us is that child labour was very common at this time. That's right, yes. Uh, not just in mills, in farms, all children from a very small age, even with the families, would be expected to go and out and work with the parents or whatever. So it, it was nothing that I don't think it was really unusual at the time. We know a thousand children worked here at this mill between 1784 and 1847. Yeah, yes, that's right. Yeah. So we also know that it wasn't until 1933 that child labour became illegal under law, that you had to be 14 years old to work. Isn't that incredible? I can't believe how recent it is. I didn't know that. 1933. So my granddad, who was born in 1903, would have been working before, say, when he was 12 or 13. Exactly. Oh, gosh, I never knew that. It's amazing. <laughs> Talking of children, William and Francis's son Enoch, we've already talked about. That's right. But there were yeah. three other children, of course. Yes. Maria, who in 1841 was 13, William Jr., who was 12, and Thomas, who was eight years old. And according to the census, each of those children was working at the mill. Okay. And it actually turns out that we've got some historical evidence to prove that. Perhaps Thomas was a tall lad and he looked he nine or been, ten, yeah. but he was actually yeah. eight years old. He might have been telling tales about his age. I never expected that at all. It's, uh, it's quite extraordinary, isn't it, yeah. to think of an eight-year-old? Eight-year-old, yeah. Working there. Some of the children that are here today, walking around at that sort of age and they're sort of playing and running and... I, I find it incredible, really. It's, uh, 
And we should also talk about the conditions in which they worked because they started work at six in the morning and they worked on until 8.30 p.m. I find this almost impossible to understand that you've got children working for 14 and a half hours a day. For next to no money. For next to no money. They had a, f a few breaks, short breaks during the day and they weren't doing this on a whole lot of food either. No, they have a, a handful of porridge in the morning that they'd eat actually at the mill. Yes, lots of oatmeal, I think. Yes. So yeah. lots of porridge and things yes. from oats. Yeah. <laughs> well, our, our next location is where many of those people would have been living. So should we go and have yeah, a look at those places? Yeah, that's great, yeah. So the walk that we're taking now from the mill to Stile is the walk that your ancestors would have taken every, every day. day. Yes. For hundreds of years so actually. So all the mill workers would have walked this way to the village and then down to the mill and into the mill. There's something really moving about walking in the footsteps of your ancestors. This is it? what, it, this really is something that really gets to me because when we first opened Quarrybank House, I was volunteering there. I went into the drawing room and I thought, it's one place I never expected to be. And then I thought, Charles Kraut is my fourth time great-grandfather. I thought, but he probably never ever stepped into this room. You know, and I find that fascinating really. Yes, there's a sort of dissonance, isn't there? That's that right. you are living in a situation that outstrips those of your ancestors. Yes. Now, we ought to talk about style because, of course, this is accommodation that was built by the Greggs in order to house their workers. And That's it right. sounds at first glance as if it was something quite generous. But in actual fact, it's a bit of a trap, isn't it? Because yes. people then who are working for the Greggs are also paying them rent. And then they get stuck in a cycle where they can't really go anywhere else. And the first few years of the shop, it was a truck shop. So the, what, anything they spent in there would be taken out of the wages before they got it. And then after a while, around about 1840, I think they were made illegal and that changed. But uh, yes, they were really tied to the, the Greg family. So the Pearsons that we've been talking about Henry and Anne and William and Francis and their children, they all would have lived here during the period in which when they earned money and spent it at the shop, yes. that, that money was taken off them and going straight back to the people who'd given them their That's wages. Right, in their lifetime, yeah. In their lifetime. So, Style Village was being built in the 1820s and by the 1830s it had something like 300 tenants uh, and they're all pretty much employed by the Greggs and they would have had allotments to That's work. right, yes. And here's the interesting thing, you are related to many of the people who lived here because yeah. the Pearsons intermarried. They had those four children and 
many of those children had many children and before you know it when we get to the cottages we're going to find places where so many of your ancestors lived. It's, it's amazing because my great-grandma lived at 12 Oak Cottages from 1900 to when she died uh, about 1961, 1962 when I was 10 and I used to sit on her steps and she used to show me off to a neighbour. I always remember taking me into the house next door, which is the empty cottage now, or telling me who lived in which cottage, and she'd show me off, this is my great-grandson. And I never even thought that other ancestors lived in different cottages. It was always that one that I was interested in, number 12. Well, let's go and see the so. connections between them. Number 12, outside they had a privy and the council used to come and empty them and it had two holes in it. And I always remember saying to my granddad, why is there two holes in that toilet? And he said, so me and your grandma can hold hands. <laughs> and I, I, he told me that was about five and it's something I've never ever forgotten. So this is what they'd have walked on in the in the clogs. Yeah. Yeah, it's quite difficult to walk on cobbles and clogs. I know. I yes. Think. Yeah. There'd be a few sparks flying. So we're standing in what looked like very quaint cottages with the red brick and these dark green doors and the porch above them and roses growing up in Budlier. It all looks rather lovely. Bit different. Bit different <laughs> from how it might have been. So we're going to start outside number seven, Oak Cottages, and there's a reason for this. This is where William and Francis lived in the 1850s. Right, right. Well, I just didn't know that at all. I, it's, uh, I've, I've walked past it so many times and never given the place a second thought. And so. they lived here with their daughter Maria, who had married uh, a man called William Parnell, and they had a daughter um, called Margaret. Yes. And they had a lodger, James Dawson, who right. may have been a relative of Francis's. Now, looking at this, it looks bigger than it would have been. Well, originally, it had been a two-up, two-down cottage, so there'd be two bedrooms. Uh, one, the front bedroom had a fireplace in, there was nothing in the back bedroom. And then a parlour, and there'd be a range in there, and then a back kitchen. Downstairs it would have been a cellar and it was probably two rooms and there'd have been a cooking range in there and there maybe have been a, another family lived in the cellar, uh, perhaps a, a young couple with a child or some elderly people. Well we can be specific can't we? With your ancestors we can say William and Francis were living here, Maria and William were living here, James Dawson the lodger was living here and Margaret the baby was living here in the 1850s. We know that for certain. Right. And next door... Oh, oh go on. <laughs> at number six was William and Francis's son Thomas. Which is my two times great-grandfather. And he married Harriet and they lived here with their four children. So they were Hannah, Herbert, Lavinia and Jessie. And all four of them worked at the mill as well. I didn't know. <laughs> Lavinia was my great-grandma. And Jessie, she married um, a chap called Whitaker, who she went to school with at the school here. Well, Jessie, you're absolutely right. Jessie and James also lived here in the Oak Cottages. They lived at number 30. 
Before that, he obviously bettered himself very much. He was working at the mill, then he became a cashier um, at a, a, a lithographic shop. That's right, in Wilmslow, Lacey Green, printing. But that's not the only one. I mean, honestly, you are related to almost all these cottages, people living in almost I all these cottages. should be the lord of the manor. <laughs> <laughs> so we also have Hannah. Hannah lived at number 35, and she married the local PC, the village constable, Edward Henshaw. At least we know he was retired um, by the 1921 census, but that's what he had been. I didn't know any of that at all. Flipping it. <laughs> and then, of course, we must go to number 12. Yeah. Amazing. This is number 12, where my great-grandma lived. I remember, as a small boy, I used to sit on these steps and watch people going by and things like that. I remember a lot about her. My granddad always used to bring us and we'd spend time with her. Now, what do you know about your, your granddad? Granddad Ernest, he saw the very first plane land at Ringway Airport when it was a field. And he would have known all these people because he'd have gone to school there, you know. And he used to bring us and he, he, he knew all the locals and he'd take us into the houses and things like that, yeah. Why don't we sit down where you used to sit with your great-grandmother okay. and let's talk a bit about her husband right. and yeah. your great-uncle. Like Cheers. Uh, Should go to the top. There's not a lot of room. I'm quite big. We'll be fine. Yeah. I love the fact that we're doing exactly what your great grandmother did. I, I used to sit here quite a lot of the time when, when I came to uh, visit her, and uh, be watching what was going on round about, and the locals would stop and talk to you. So, to be clear, your great-grandmother, Lavinia, was a Pearson. Yes. And she married William Higginson. That's right, yes. Great-grandfather. Uh, that's right, and he was a builder. Yes. And in 1916 was enlisted in the Cheshire Regiment and was on the Salonica front and caught malaria. No. He did, yes. He was actually hospitalised for 157 days. Nobody ever, ever talked about that. And uh, th th their eldest son, Willie, he, he joined the RAF when it was formed at Ringway Airport in 1919. And I, I saw the document and I could never understand why Lavinia had signed it as head of household and not my grandfather. It would have been because he wasn't here. Oh, flipping heck. Though he did come back to Oak Cottages after he was discharged and they had their five children and you've mentioned William the oldest. Yeah. Let's talk about William. So he was your great uncle. Do you have memories of him? Nobody seems to know anything at all about him. All I know is he married a, a lady called Ada Acton. What I know absolutely nothing at all about. Um, Willie, as they called him. Willie, well, the experts at Find My Past have found out a thing or two, shall I tell you? Go on, yes. So, Willie tried to join up when he was underage. He tried to join the 7th Cheshire Regiment. I wonder whether it was his father's, I don't know. 
but they, they chucked him out once they figured out he was too young. And then, as you say, he joined the RAF when he was 18 and he served and actually did pretty well. He was promoted to a sergeant right. and then discharged when the war came to an end. As you say, he married Ada Acton. That happened in February 1920. Now, but here's the thing. Within a month of that marriage, we find him uh, listed as a clerk, traveling first class to Nigeria. No. <laughs> so he went off seeking his fortune, I suppose. You know, the yeah. British Empire at the time was seen by many people as, as a place of opportunity. And so he went off just a month after the marriage and came back two years later to Ada. Obviously right. didn't work out in Nigeria, I suppose. And they conceived a child. And he left before the child was born. He went off again, this time third class, not quite so salubrious, but he was traveling to Australia. Right. And he was in Australia, he went there with his brother-in-law and he was in Australia for 10 years. I find this incredible. So, you know, their daughter was born when he'd already gone. And by 1933, we have newspaper reports of Ada filing for separation. So they'd been married for 13 years and he'd been present for nine months of that time. And she'd brought up the child on her own. On her own. And she last heard from him, according to these newspaper reports, in May 1923, and then nothing at all until 1930. So she wouldn't have known if he was alive or dead. Yeah. Unbelievable. <laughs> and he hadn't sent her any money. And so the, one of the reasons she was filing for separation, she was saying, you know, I've had to work since he's been gone to support myself. And actually one of the benefits yeah. of filing for separation was that she could make him pay out some money yeah. to look after her. But the thing I find absolutely extraordinary is that the 1939 register has the couple living together again. So he came back from Australia, they reunited, and then they had another child. It was right. a daughter, Sheila. It's amazing, because I, I just didn't know any of this about him. I used to, I knew about Willie, and I knew he'd uh, gone off and joined the Cheshire Regiment, and he, he was sent back after a few months and I one of the Greggs was a colonel in the Cheshires and I thought well perhaps Lavinia's had a word with him and got him back and then the next thing I knew he joined the RAF at, uh, at Ringway stroke Manchester Airport but that's all I knew about him. What I find amazing about this story is that you've got here one of your family members Higginson but a Pearson yes. through his mother's line who has been born here and he keeps trying to escape. <laughs> he goes off to join the Cheshire Regiment, goes off to join the RAF, goes to Nigeria, goes to Australia. But in the end, in 1939, we have him and Ada living, guess where? In, in Wilmslow. In Wilmslow. So his whole family has been here and it's like, in the end, it pulls him back. Yes, it's amazing. He sounds to me as though he was an adventurer, wasn't he? And he, he wanted to get away and perhaps make his fortune. I've done my family tree and my ancestor in 1470 was born in Wilmslow and I'm still here. So I, my bit of the family has never moved. <laughs> Turns out Wilmslow is hard to escape. I know it, obviously, yeah. Flipping. 
That's great. Thanks very much. <laughs> so that brings us to the end of our journey into the past at Quarry Bank and I'll peek into the lives and experiences of your ancestors. David, what do you make of what we've uncovered? Well, I, I think it's just been brilliant really. I've learned some things are new but not to this extent and especially Willie, finding out so much about him and uh, what people like Enoch did and uh, you know Maria and all those people. It just makes you want to find out more. But it also makes me very proud that I come from style. You know, I think it's something to be quite proud about. Do you think they might not have felt that in sort of 1800, might they? You know, because we were working in a mill and things like that. But I, I just love telling people where I'm from and about the history of things. I think it's great. Yeah. Well, I've been very privileged to share your story with you today. So Thanks thank very much. It's great. Really good. It's yeah. been well, it's been really great to talk about it with you. Yeah, it's superb. And here we are sitting at the sun. Well, that's it for this episode of Step Into the Past. My thanks to David Higginson for being such a fantastic guest and to the whole team here at Quarry Bank Mill. Quarry Bank is cared for by the National Trust and truly is worth a visit if you get a chance. You can find all the information about this episode on the Find My Past website, www.findmypast.co.uk. That's www.findmypast.co.uk and get started on your own family tree for free. Where will your past take you? I'm Professor Susanna Lipscomb. Join me next time when I'll be walking in the footsteps of the Wordsworth family in the Lake District exploring a historical rift that echoed down the generations. Don't forget to hit follow in your favourite podcast app so you'll be notified whenever a new episode is released. Thanks for listening. Until next time. <laughs>